0: From filling your ears to filling your stomach will help you add extra dimensions to your travels in the hour
1: ahead. I used to live in London, and I'll tell you, I was there as a poor graduate student, but it was one of the greatest experiences of my life because every night in London, almost like Vienna back in 1800, there's a fabulous concert to be heard, and a lot of the time it's really affordable. Ben Curtis tells us about his favorite places
0: to enjoy classical music in Europe, and Christina Duarte recommends going beyond Lisbon to taste the many flavors of Portugal, especially in the siesta-free north.
2: I love Porto, one of those cities that have so much things to give and uh, still not so much explored.
0: And from street food in Japan to sharing mutton in Mongolia or even a feast of betel nuts and fruit bat in Micronesia, Don George proves that mealtimes can offer some of the richest cultural treats in our travels.
3: They have things bubbling in pots that they will spoon out for you and you eat them and they're all delicious and you don't know what you're eating and you're drinking and talking. and
0: It's all just ahead on Travel with Rick Steves. Even seasoned travelers are sometimes tossed a loop when offered things they've never imagined eating or deciphering a menu in language they just can't read. Today, we'll explore the challenges and rewards of taking an adventurous spirit with you to dinner. Hi, I'm Rick Steves. Coming up, travel writer Don George fields your calls as we feast our way around the world. And Portuguese guide Cristina Duarte tells us where we can taste the heart and soul of Portugal and that's in the countryside and the smaller cities outside of Lisbon. We'll open today's Travel with Rick Steves with a look at how you can expand your appreciation of classical music beyond CDs and the concert hall by visiting the stomping grounds of Europe's famous composers. Ben Curtis teaches political science at Seattle University, and he travels extensively in Europe. One of his passions is visiting the homes and museums associated with the great composers, and he's here to share some of his favorites. Ben, thanks for joining us. My
1: pleasure to be here, Rick.
0: Ben, if you were uh, advising a friend or somebody going to Europe to splice in some of the best uh, musical sites in Europe, what are the must-see attractions?
1: Well, I would say go to the musical capitals. You've got to go to Vienna, which has an absolutely unparalleled, not only musical history, but musical performance today. You've got to go to London. You've got to go to Munich. You've got to go to Berlin. And then, of course, you can hit some other world-famous things like La Scala Opera in Milan. It's kind of, I always think of it when I go to Europe and hit these places, it's kind of my pilgrimage. I'm going to the great shrines. I'd be ashamed uh,
0: to be in Milan and not go to La Scala. Absolutely. Or to Vienna and not go to the Opera House. And I found in a lot of these countries, the government actually sort of subsidizes the arts for young people, uh, specifically, uh, who are unable to afford it, and any traveler who just doesn't have the money to spend 150 bucks for an opera ticket, you can do standby tickets, you can find mm-hmm. ways. Have you found that?
1: Absolutely. I mean, that's the thing that I also always tell people is even if you're not that excited by classical music, you've heard of Mozart, of course. You've heard of Verdi. You've probably heard of Wagner. You've heard of Bach. And if you're not normally a classical music crazy person like myself, you can still go and see even a portion of a fantastic concert for very little money there because you can get a cheap ticket and the experience, even to sit there for an hour until intermission, is absolutely worth it. Yeah,
0: you know, to be honest, I'm not good a lot of times for a whole opera. I have a tough time with it, but I want to, you know, get a sample of that, and even standing room. There's Mm -hmm. usually standing room for $5. Uh, It's just quite an experience, and you also get that bonus of seeing all the uh, cultural elite of the city dressed up in there. It's not a tourist experience. It's the local culture.
1: Exactly, and it's central to the culture. I mean these great artists help define these European cultures that many a Czech, say, or many a Norwegian can't conceive of their national culture without thinking about Smetana in Prague or Grieg in Norway. That's a very
0: interesting point, this whole mix of patriotism and music. I mean, for a lot of countries, a lot of nations, you have this national resurgence movement, don't you, in the Romantic Age, the Mm -hmm. uh, 1800s. And you've got all these countries, whether it's Bulgaria or Norway or whatever, that are kept down by being stuck in bigger multinational old-school empires, right?
1: Yeah, and what's really fascinating is these composers come along, and you might think of a composer as some sort of highly cultivated gentleman sitting at a piano in ruffles and playing music. But in fact, many of these composers in the 19th century, people like Smetana, like Verdi, like Wagner they are politicians as well. They're leaders. They are leaders. Subversive leaders. Subversive leaders, indeed. And they stir things up. They're rabble-rousers, and they do it partially through their music. That their music... I mean, if you've ever heard, say, um, the great chorus from Nabucco in Verdi's opera Nabucco, which swept Italian towns when it came out, you get enthusiastic. Now, what, you understand what decade why. would this be when it came That's to That's especially the 1860s is it, the great decade. So, Italy decade. was
0: united in 1870 or so. Mm-hmm. Most of the powers who controlled the different states of Italy didn't want to see a united Italy, right? Yeah, exactly. You, you couldn't even wave the Italian flag without getting in trouble. Mm-hmm. But you could go to the opera house. And when the Verdi song came on, that was like an anthem for Italy.
1: Exactly. What would happen? Patriotism is up there on stage, and you would get, yes, the the cheers. People would
0: stand on their seats and sing along. Mm-hmm. I mean, that was how you waved the flag.
1: Exactly. And you you read these composers' letters, and they talk about, yes, I heard crowds whistling and singing my songs in the streets. Tell me
0: a little more about how the other Mm -hmm. sort of nationalistic composers fed that fire.
1: Yeah. Well, I love Prague, and I spend a lot of time in Prague, and Prague is also one of the great musical cities of Europe. And a lot of Americans have heard of Dvořák, who's a great composer as well, but the man who's even more important to Dvořák in terms of Czech identity is Smetana, who is most famous for The Bartered Bride, which that's one of the great things that he did. He put the Czech peasants up on stage, because the peasants, they weren't treated with respect most of the time, right? They're the most oppressed, population in any European country, but composers and other artists like Smetana, they said, look, here is the pure, untainted Czechness. Here is what we should be in terms of our own national culture and its very roots. And so they put them up on the opera stage. And that was crazy because here's this high art form, which you have peasants dancing around. But Composers like Smetana said, we're going to show that the peasant culture is the root of our culture and we're going to put it into art.
0: So in the 19th century, high musical art was not limited and appreciated only by the high echelons of the culture?
1: Yeah. I mean, I put it this way. Opera was the TV of its day. In that, sure, there was the fancy barons and duchesses who would go there, but it was the entertainment that everyone went to. I mean, the uh, theater, that's where everyone went. And my it,
0: Czech friends, even today, when you hear Smetana, they just say, please stop. Let's just remember the Czech people.
1: Exactly. It's and, hard
0: for Americans to quite relate to that.
1: It is. Well, Something I want for everybody is to listen to Smetana's Voltava, which is his tone poem about the Voltava River that runs through Prague, to listen to that. While sitting there and staring across the Vltava at Prague Castle, because all of those sights are right there in the music,
0: and that is probably the quintessential stir your check soul piece. Exactly, is that the one that goes da 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 da, <laughs> da da
1: da 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 da? Yep. And he yeah. paints the whole course of the river from where it starts until where it ends in the music. A trick is to choose the right venue. It's true. The fun sometimes is your head into the venue and see where they're playing, because the church itself, they're usually in these great churches, and they're so opulent itself, that it's just worth spending an hour in the church to look at all the decoration.
0: You know, to, to listen to Baroque music in a Baroque venue, there's something about that. It's just right. Tell me about Wagner.
1: Wagner, he's this great controversial character. I mean... Because he's super romantic. He's right? super romantic. He, he epitomizes the 19th century in so many ways, and I'm not gonna lie to you, he was a jerk. Wagner was an anti-Semite. Wagner was this egomaniacal, self-interested jerk. And he, however, was committed to putting German art into classical music because he thought, well, there was Bach, right? But then after Bach, what happened? Well, French and Italian style came over.
0: Wasn't this a time when Germany was sort of, I mean, Germany was just uniting? And there was a question, is Germany really a viable and legitimate nation and people like wagner stirred up all sorts of proto-german mythological mm-hmm. superheroes sort of the the paul bunyans of that culture you know
1: exactly smetana wanted to to show how valuable the peasant culture was wagner wanted to show how valuable german culture was in regard to French and Italian, because, didn't, of course, French and Italian dominated, say, opera and classical music.
0: Wasn't he a friend of King Ludwig II?
1: He was. Mad King Ludwig. Mad I King mean, Ludwig, didn't yeah. Didn't he,
0: some of, some of the rooms at Neuschwanstein uh, mm-hmm. are inspired by Wagnerian opera themes?
1: Absolutely, yeah. Mad King Ludwig was actually a groupie of Wagner's.
0: I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. I'm joined by Ben Curtis, and we're two uh, Europhiles who love music, and we're talking about how you can spice a little music into your European sightseeing. Ben, when you are in Vienna... To me, it is such a remarkable thing to think about how the Habsburgs not only loved music,
1: they patronized music. For hundreds of years, too. Yeah, I think that it's one of the great absurd moments in human history that especially for 50 years from, say, 1770 to 1820, a little after 1820, you have one of the greatest collections of creative humans in all of existence that happen in Vienna.
0: Huh. That's interesting. That 50-year period, sort of a golden age of uh, high culture in Vienna, Mm -hmm. and at that time Vienna rivaled Paris or Madrid as the cultural capital of Europe, I suppose. Mm -hmm.
1: Absolutely. In fact, in music, nowhere can quite compare. Vienna was the leading light of music, especially during this time. You I mean, know.
0: Wh- who are some people that were uh, getting kicked out of their apartments because they were practicing too late <laughs> right. during this period?
1: Well, the, the kind of grand old man, of course, was Papa Haydn, Joseph Haydn, who actually for many years lived out in the countryside. He was employed by a Hungarian nobleman But he also, of course, worked in Vienna, and even for a very brief little time, uh, tutored Mozart. And so Mozart is now the the favorite son in many ways of Vienna, though, of course, he was not nearly as popular, especially among the Viennese aristocracy during his day. But then following Mozart, you get my favorite, I really think, the greatest composer who ever lived, and that's Beethoven. Mm -hmm. And though Beethoven was from Bonn up in Germany, he made Vienna his city. So it was
0: natural for composers from Germany or Austria to sort of think, You know, life goes better for a musician in a composer in Vienna. Here I get the respect, here I get the money, here I get the work, here I get great symphonies and an audience that respects what I'm doing.
1: It was a magnet. So people came from Germany. These guys
0: could have jammed
1: together. Yeah, indeed they did. Hey,
0: it's Tuesday. Let's go over to Haydn's house.
1: You know, this is the thing that I, I always fantasize about, is that say, yeah, it's Tuesday night, um... Beethoven might be playing with his quintet, and his quintet members would be an archduke, so one of, the, one of the leading Habsburg noblemen, and two other great professional musicians, and then another kind of intelligent and gifted amateur, and they'd gather an audience of friends, and here you have one of the greatest geniuses of all time just making an average Tuesday night of music.
0: I love it. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're celebrating music in Europe at the same time with Ben Curtis. Ben, along with Vienna, you mentioned London, Munich, and Berlin as great capitals of music. A little surprising to me. Take us to one of those cities and tell me why that should be on your list if you're a music lover in Europe.
1: Well, I used to live in London, and I'll tell you, I was there as a poor graduate student, but it was one of the greatest experiences of my life because every night in London, almost like Vienna back in 1800, there's a fabulous concert to be heard. And a lot of the times it's really affordable. You know, England used to be known pejoratively, as the land without music, but now they have four fantastic full symphony orchestras. There's more chamber music there, there's more singers there. Every night of the week, there's something great to be seen. And I think, sure, you go to London for the great plays and the great theater, but if you don't hit some classical music in London, you're really missing out on some of the great scene there.
0: What's your favorite venue in London for classical music?
1: Well, I'm, I'm a little bit of a connoisseur on these things. I love the Wigmore Hall, which is one of the most perfect chamber music halls anywhere in the world. And you go there, you don't hear a symphony orchestra, you hear one of the greatest leader singers, so the German leader singers, and it's intimate, and these singers create a story with every song, and here you're sitting in this place of 200 people, maybe, and at the end of, say, Schubert's uh, The Beautiful Maid, Schöne Müllerin, there's a story, you've all been through this catharsis, and at the end of it, nobody breathes. When you get a great singer, like Fischer or something like that, nobody breathes because you've been in this experience together in this intimate hall for an hour and a half and then it's over, and you go back to the real world. Whoa. Wigmore Hall. Wigmore Hall in London. I'm going to check it out.
0: Ben Curtis, thanks for uh, helping us spice a little bit of music appreciation into our European travels.
1: Thanks, Rick. Mm -hmm.
0: I love getting in sync with the rhythm of everyday life in Portugal. Next, Cristina Duarte guides us beyond the usual starting point of Lisbon to lay out the distinctive attractions of the less-visited towns and countryside in her home country. We're at 877-333-7425. It's Travel with Rick Steves. as as I'm concerned, Portugal is underrated and if anybody does get to Portugal, they go to Lisbon and they forget about the rest of this fascinating country. It's a small country, about 10 million people, 94% Catholic. It's got a GDP about the size of the state of Indiana. People make about $22,000 a year. The economy is uh, sort of uh, on the skids like much of Europe and we're going to learn about Portugal right now. We're joined by Cristina Duarte, Cristina's a guide from Portugal and she's right here in our studios. Cristina, thanks for being with us. It's a pleasure. As a tour guide, you must see people coming to Lisbon and neglecting the rest of the country. What should people know about outside of Lisbon in your country?
2: Portugal is a small country. Capital is Lisbon. But as far as you drive away from one hour, you think that you are in a different country because it's so varied in landscape, in temperature, in people, in inhabitudes, and costumes, and also food that... It makes all the difference. When I go to a place like Évora
0: or Alcobacha or Porto, these are, you know, regional capitals outside of Lisbon, I feel like there's more traditional lifestyles alive in the countryside. If you want to find the old-fashioned living in Portugal, where do you look?
2: North of the country. North of the country. The North of the country because it's the area where, let's say, the country was born first. It is where it is located, the older towns, the older cities, the older churches. So, automatically, all the older traditions are located in north of the country. So, Porto is just the capital of the north of the country. Everything that is up the Douro Valley and the Douro River. So, it's not only Porto City that is beautiful, but you have some others like... uh, Guimarães, that is said, that is the, the nest of the country, so from where the country was born, or Braga. So all the cities are quite beautiful. To the south of country, in Évora, you mentioned Évora it's completely different. Its area of plain, of a different landscape, is dry, so it's not as fresh and green as the north part of the country. And because of history also the accumulation of people was different, so it developed in a different way to the cities.
0: So if we think about this, the historic and cultural birthplace or heartland is the north. It is more green because just north of that is Galicia, and that's in Spain where it's got a climate almost like Ireland. You know, it's uh, very rainy. And in the south, you have more Muslim influence. It's more dry. And it just feels like a big, high, windy prairie.
2: Exactly. It's like that. As a matter of fact, we call the city of Porto the London of Portugal. <laughs> because of the weather? Of because of the weather. <laughs> now, let's
0: talk about Porto for a minute, because yes. I love Porto. It has... Lisbon has all the famous things, but Porto is just where you get your fingers dirty in Portugal. Yes.
2: Yes. I love Porto well, why, as well. Why do you like it? Um... I'm from Lisbon, so I'm not really not supposed to not like because Porto. Because competing cities. Yes. This is Chicago <laughs> there and is New a York bit, There's country. always a little bit of reality between the two big cities. But I love Porto, and I think that Porto has one of those cities that have so much things to give and uh, still not so much explored.
0: It's famous for the port wine, of course, because of course. this is where the Douro River comes in to the Atlantic. And, yes. And uh, all of the vineyards from the Douro Valley they would send their grape juice down yes. the river on these historic boats.
2: Exactly. And the boats are still there now on the river. They do the cruises. They are no longer used for the transportation of the wine, but you still have the wine cellars. So the rough-and-tumble town of Porto sort of tumbles down to the river, and then on the south
0: bank of the river, across exactly. from the city, you've got all the famous names of the port yes, they winemakers. Yes, are about 200. What yes. names do you see?
2: Uh, Sandman, Taylors, Downs, Ferreira... Uh, Callum. A lot of English names. Yes, because they were the very first one, let's say, to discover port wine. So the we English were... made that industry. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> we we had the grapes, we had the wine, and we also had the valley. But they brought the brandy to that wine, and ah. they made a the commerce out of it.
0: So you had the sunshine, the valley, the grapes, and the people, <laughs> and the people, and England had the drinkers. Yeah. And the brandy, because (laughs) you mix the wine with the brandy to make the port. Yes. It's a a blended wine. In its day, Portugal was, you could say, one of the most powerful and richest countries in Europe, right? Yes. 500 years ago, Vasco da Gama, Magellan, all these great guys. Yes. And you see a lot of that richness because it was just like rake home the, the gold and it was just very easy times for Portugal and you saw a lot of the richness in the architecture, where can you feel the importance of Portugal in its glory days outside of Lisbon?
2: Uh, Porto, for the Baroque. In that case, is not the money brought from from let's say the commerce with India and the time of Vasco de Gama but later on on the 1700 with the man brought from the commerce and the trade of port wine so ah, port Porto wine. yes paid for the oh, yes. Baroque architecture yeah. Porto is known as like the capital of Baroque in Portugal so and the 1700 there is no better 1700 Baroque style less in north of Portugal south of Portugal is more to the Manueline style so the okay. part that is the 1500 and related with the commerce of India and Brazil and also some other places because in Because Spain and
0: Portugal basically divided up the world, in their. We in... needed
2: to. We needed to. Otherwise, it will be a conflict between the two countries. So you had a so, friendly
0: agreement. You yes. say, we'll take, uh, we'll take friendly, Brazil, you take the rest friendly of South America. It was
2: not that friendly. As a matter of fact, we sat for a while <laughs> and discussed it for almost 30 years. The Tour de Zilles Treaty took a while to make an agreement to how much and how were the length to each one of the countries to go, and in which direction. It's
0: interesting because Portugal
2: and Spain, I understand, have one of the longest
0: unchanging borders in Europe. Yes. So there's always been a very clear demarcation. This is Portugal, that's Spain.
2: There was, but uh, it was rough. It was rough to keep those frontiers for a long time. I mean, since we have not altered our frontiers since uh, 1249 twelve forty nine. So the border has not changed yeah, since twelve forty nine. Exactly. So Whoa, that's seven hundred
0: and fifty years. It's one of, it, yeah, it's one of the changed. oldest borders in the world. <laughs> you you welcome a lot of American travelers mm-hmm. when they go to your home country mm-hmm. in Portugal. Do you find it a little bit annoying when travelers come and they speak Spanish in Portugal or they think Portugal is kind of like one part of Spain?
2: Uh, no, actually, no. no. Actually, we have a characteristic. The Portuguese people are very warm and very welcoming. So when all the foreigner people, when tourists arrive to us and they speak to us in Spanish, actually what we see is somebody that is trying very hard to make us oh, understand. Oh, that's so
1: sweet. You're it's, so understanding. It's really,
2: it's, no, no, but it's true. It's true. And uh, <laughs> we are that. So if I kind say of... "Buenos
0: Dias," then you'll correct me. Yeah, they will. They w- will. What would I say? Yes,
2: but they will. It's not correcting you in a hard way no, and it's making just a, a loving. A, a, yeah, a, a, a I say, well, we are in Portugal. It's Bon Dia. Bon, bon Dia. Bon dia. <laughs> you see, like a mom that says, "Well, Bon Dia."
0: Okay. <laughs> How are you distinct from Spain in just lifestyle?
2: Um, different. We are a kind of between the rest of Europe and the Spaniard in habitudes. So normally lunch for us, it is possible to have lunch around noon until two.
0: So you wouldn't find that in Spain?
2: No. And uh, then dinner from eight, not before eight. It will be quite difficult between 8 and 9.30. And Spain would be 9 until 11, The big difference is that as they have a huge time for siesta that we don't have, and if we have... No siesta in Portugal? No, no siesta. Ah. In the big cities, that's something that disappeared automatically. Everything is open. Everything is open from 1 to 3. Probably on the smaller cities you still have this siesta time from 1 to 3.
0: Spain has a lot of tapas, these little mm-hmm. tiny plates of food. I don't find that in Portugal. No,
2: really. we don't have. We have some some similar things in south of Portugal. Mm-hmm. In the Alentejo area in every area. Oh, okay. And why is that? Because in these areas were very poor. So you don't have money to all the rich food. So you just picked the little things. Okay. You were doing appetizers or <laughs> whatever. Is with... there a word for that yeah. in Portuguese? Uh, petisco. 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 Petisco is the picking thing. In
0: Spain, the paseo is a big thing. Everybody's out and walking at a certain time.
2: That is something that I would like personally. I would like that Portugal will have more. Yeah. So that's because something... we have a wonderful weather and it will be nice to have it more.
0: I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're exploring Portugal with Cristina Duarte from Portugal. Our phone number is 877-333-7425. And Gail's on the phone in Irvine, California. Gail, thanks for your call.
4: Yes, hi. My husband and I are on a cruise that hits two ports in Portugal, Lisbon and Portimao. So we have just one day in each location, and we prefer to find a, a small port private guided tour in each location and and avoid the um, excursions that the cruise ship puts on. So my question is, how would I find a private guide for both Lisbon and Portimao, and what are the the main sites that we should be looking to see?
0: Well, Cristina Duarte is a private guide, and there's a lot of good private guides like Cristina. So, Cristina, without advertising you. Let's just talk about you and your workmates in Lisbon. Yes. What does it cost if you were to meet the cruise ship privately and show somebody we have, around?
2: Basically, we have the fees are based in, uh, it's a four-hour tour four or eight-hour. Okay. So half-day or full-day. And, and the prices are different between a weekday and a weekend. So what's a weekday the for The weekday four hours? is about 100 euros for four hours. And for eight hours? Uh, 165. A so, weekday. Okay,
0: Gail, you got that? So it's about $130 for a private guide for four hours to meet okay. you at the cruise ship. Mm-hmm. Yes. And you could gather your friends on the cruise ship together. You could have yes. four up people. To, you yes,
2: could, up to 20 is the same <laughs> price. Up to 20
0: So if you've got a little entrepreneurial there for, for 10 bucks each, you can uh, have your guide meet you at the port, and you can pocket the difference, and you're a tour organizer, all right?
4: Yes. Well, there are six. Uh, Six people, of us. so that's um, dirt yeah.
0: cheap, and, right now, so that's, and that's better than being herded around with yeah. the group. And the As a matter of
2: fact, by emailing you also can get some help from one of the local guides in if you want also some some kind of uh, transportation.
0: Now, where is the cruise port in Lisbon?
2: There are three harbors that they are possible. Right. Normally, Alcántara is the normal one, and Santa Polonia, but there are three possibility places. Is there easy in,
0: access to the city?
2: Uh, not really. Taxi. The taxi. You hop in a taxi and in half an hour you're downtown. That is an advice. When you jump out of the boat, please don't take the taxi that is there on the harbor. Just uh, go further on for a couple of meters and just wave to one on passing. On the
3: street.
0: Now, this is a very good tip anywhere in Europe. If the cabbies are waiting at the cruise ship... If there are dishonest taxis that yes. want to take advantage of a green, rich tourist, they'll be camping out at the cruise port. And they're waiting there a long time. Yes. And there's a lot of competition. But if you simply walk away and flag down a taxi that's driving by, then you're just another customer. They'll turn on the meter and you're on your way.
4: Yes. Oh, I see. Yes. Yeah. Good to know.
0: I think that's very good to know. And down in Mao, uh, there's frankly not a lot of great sightseeing down on the south if you had a day There's just, you know, beautiful beaches and uh, fun in the sun. If you had a day in Portimao with a guide and a car, Cristina, where would you go?
2: Uh, Lagos, it's one of the possibilities. Uh, Silves is not far away. What about Uh, Sagres? Sagres has a belt there, has a viewpoint, and with the nature, because you will be like in the end of the Iberia. <laughs> well, that's like the end of Europe. That's yes, the
0: southwest yes, tip of yeah, all of Europe. You in the ocean. Wow. All right. Gail, have a good time.
4: Okay, thank you very Thanks much. for
0: your call. Okay. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Cristina Duarte about her home country, Portugal. Cristina, of course, Portugal had a difficult time with its dictator Salazar. When was Salazar put out of power?
2: Uh, he died in 69, 69, but the revolution was 1974.
0: 74, you won your freedom, basically. Yes. Is there a heritage of that dictatorial time in Portugal that's interesting for a tourist to know about?
2: Uh, yes, because many things change. Of course, there was a huge change of the country and, um, well, there was a development after that because there was a certain way of thinking. So that suddenly
0: there was a freedom to... There
2: was a freedom on, on thinking, on talking, on writing, on art also. What, was
0: there a backlash that went really into the crazy zone because they were so controlled before that? You know, when you have no freedom and suddenly you have freedom. Yes,
2: yes. My expression for that is like a child on a, a toy shop. Okay, Uh, so you were like, well, we say like kids in a candy store. You were like children in a candy store when the dictator was gone. Yes, it's like
0: that. It was like that. So it's kind of like Spain after Franco. Yes. Similar thing. Ten years ago, Portugal legalized the consumption of all drugs. Yes. Now, you've had ten years of this experience where it's like we can't hardly imagine that. Not just marijuana. All drugs are legal. What has been the result of that?
2: You don't feel so much that thing. I mean, it's not le- because it is legalized that everybody right now is smoking on the streets. No, you don't feel so that. So
0: basically, yeah. they just wanted to take the crime out yes, of it and the yes. money out of it. Yes, yeah,
2: exactly, exactly. And 10 years
0: later, yeah. Portugal is generally happy with this new law.
2: You don't feel any difference.
0: No difference. No. And I think other countries are paying attention to that. Portugal is a member of the European Union. Mm-hmm. And in the beginning, you were one of the poor countries of the European Union, so you got more money.
2: Yes, that now is, at the end we are also ending up by being the one of the poorest. <laughs> and on is just where you started. Yes. <laughs> is it is it good to be in the European Union or do you wish you were? Had... No, I I I can't talk about everybody's opinion. My personal opinion is that it's better to be on than be out. Mm-hmm. And
0: economic times are difficult yes. either yes. way. When I go to Portugal, I love the seafood. If I Me want too. the best seafood, <laughs> where do I go?
2: Mm nearby the sea. Lisbon, you have pretty much good restaurants on the seafood. What should I know to order? The cod is, is, is from Norway, basically. Isn't it? It's yeah. dry and salty. Yes, but it's a fish that was possible to buy in different quantities and different prices. So it became very popular because if you had more money, you could buy a better one. If you had less money, you could buy just the tongs.
0: Was <laughs> and that the, right? Yeah. The bad cuts.
2: That, yeah, that's why we have 365 ways of cooking bacalao because you cook it, you had for all prices. And so it's
0: the national dish of Portugal yes. and it covers all economic yes, classes. Yes,
2: all economical classes. And I
0: suppose people of all economic classes like sweets. Yes. <laughs> what <laughs> sweet should I be sure to enjoy when I'm in your country?
2: In Lisbon, pastel de nata or pastel <sighs> de belém? Describe. Yeah, it's like a custard cake. Yeah. Very crusty and yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Pastel de nata. Pastel de nata or mostly known as Pastel de Belém because the best pastry shop is in Belém District. I'm not normally like,
0: oh, that was to die for, but these Pastel de Nata, yes. it, it's like the pastry of N-A-T-A, Nata? N-A-T-A, yes. Or specifically from the town of Belém, B-E-L-E-M. Um, yes. And I'll tell you, anywhere in Portugal, I love a Pastel de Nata. Yeah, Duarte <laughs> Arte, obrigado
2: de for nada. being with us today. <laughs> Obrigada. Cada vez mais português
1: anda nas asas do vento. Às vezes solta tão um lamento e pede
0: how you've been inspired in your travels in the form of an original haiku poem. The radio section of our website at ricksteves.com has details on how to send us your submissions. Here are some recent examples of what listeners have sent us.
3: Will Phillips from Seattle writes us with these haiku about landing in Europe. Transatlantic lag lifted upon arrival among new faces Ancient nations live, pushing proud at the edges of our world-worn maps. Randy Ham of Bakersfield, California, noticed this in the fields of Switzerland. Alpen cattle graze, dangling uniquely tuned bells, wind chime on the hoof. And J. David Hirschberger of Boulder, Colorado, sums up his travel rewards like this. The tattered suitcase of a weary traveler restoreth my soul.
0: Travel writer Don George joins us next to explain why a healthy appetite should be on every packing list. 877-333-RICK is how you reach us at Travel with Rick Steves. When you're traveling abroad, how much you spend really won't determine how well you eat when you go out to dinner. Don George has assembled stories of life changing food adventures around the world in his latest book. It's published by Lonely Planet and it's called A Movable Feast. The book includes essays from Anthony Bourdain, Simon Winchester, Jeff Greenwald, Jan Morris, Pico Iyer, and 33 other contributors. Don also writes for and edits the websites for Adventure Collection and Geographic Expeditions. Don, thanks for joining us.
3: It's wonderful to be here, Rick.
0: Don, what a cool book, 38 Courses. Now, you you selected essays from 38 travel writers, not all famous travel writers, a lot of people who are not well-known. Tell me just the the goal of your book, the criterion for choosing these 38 edible courses to uh, lace together for this package.
3: Well, the idea was that we all eat when we travel, and people eat in different ways, but I'm a lifelong traveler and travel writer, and I know that food for me is one of the great pathways into a culture. And I asked a number of other travel writers if they had any great food experiences that kind of illuminated the same theme. And everybody had some kind of story that they wanted to tell about an unforgettable meal here, um, a really tremendous act of kindness involving food at somewhere. So it was easy to put the stories together, and it was wonderful that it turned out to be a food tour of the entire world with no particular emphasis on any region or another. Just great stories of food in all kinds of different situations helping to open up a place and a people and a culture to travelers.
0: Now, when I looked at your book, and I realized it's essays by 38 travel writers on their favorite food experiences, I kind of thought, oh, okay, we're going to get, like, 38 restaurant reviews and a description of 38 meals. But much more than that, it's, it's more than the food that's on the plate. It's, it's the whole context, isn't it? The cultural context.
3: It, it is absolutely all about the context. Sometimes the food is almost lost in the ritual around the food. I mean, it may be a very simple piece of bread or a a piece of fruit that's the food involved, but the context of that food, how it's offered, how it's consumed, that's what becomes really the richness of the story. And and it makes you realize that food plays roles in our travels in so many different ways. It's not all about five-star meals. It's about food in all of its manifestations, and that's one of the things I love about the book. (laughs) You write in
0: your book that food nourishes us not only physically, but intellectually, emotionally, and spiritually, too. What do you mean by that? How does food nourish us other than physically?
3: Well, it becomes a communion, a real act of communion to sit down with someone and take a meal with them. Suddenly, you're doing much more than just consuming nutrition. Someone went to the market and bought that food. Someone brought it back to a kitchen and prepared it. They sliced it and diced it and cooked it. They used local seasonings. A meal becomes an education, you know, a course in the local culture. And then you start to talk to people about the food and about their appreciation of the food. And so it just food just becomes nourishing on all those different levels of human contact and, and creation. And that's what I love about it. There's one story in the book that I love where A disgruntled traveler ends up going into a restaurant where there's all these local people and they ask him to join them. And uh, he ends up, it's a group of doctors that get together every Sunday and he's just invited into their feast and he's embraced as one of them and he ends up having one of the best meals of his life. And it turns his whole day around and it teaches him something about Portugal and doctors in that town that he never, ever otherwise could have learned.
0: Yeah, Jim Benning, who runs the World Hub website, uh, he wrote a fascinating uh, essay in your book on... uh, Tijuana terroir. And, of course, terroir is this concept in in France where you've got the culture and the earth and the sun and everything that's sort of all swizzled into that wine, and you just when you drink it, you're connecting with the salt of the earth. He was having carnitas, which he said you could have just as well in San Diego, just across the border, but in Tijuana, it was like the place to have it. And uh, (laughs) let me just read this, because it's just so fun. And then it hit me why I'd come to Tijuana for lunch. He just crossed over on the tram from from San Diego. Sure, I could have probably found the same beautiful carnita back in San Diego, a city known for its great Mexican cuisine, but we don't eat food in a vacuum, and there's more to a meal than the sum of its ingredients. Much like the terroir of winemaking, the connection between grapes and the unique soil and the climate they grow in, there exists a kind of cultural terroir related to our food. To eat ethnic food in the place that gave it life and to immerse oneself in the history and culture of that place can transform an otherwise mundane meal into an extraordinary experience. Isn't that great?
3: I love it, yeah. Uh,
0: you write, food can be the doorway to the heart of a tribe.
3: Yes, precisely. There, there's actually a story in the book that illustrates that theme. There's a, an adventurer, Lawrence Millman, is on the Micronesian island of Faise, and, and he ends up eating the local specialty, which is grilled bat, not something you find on your normal menu here in, in the United States. But because he is open-hearted enough and open-minded enough and, I guess, open-stomached enough to uh, to partake in that local delicacy, suddenly the, the tribe embraces him as one of their own. He becomes a, a kind of a son of Faís by doing that. And it's happened to me all around the world in, in Greece I was honored at the Easter festival when they offered me the eyeballs of the lamb. That's, that's the great honored Guests gets to eat the eyeballs. And, of course, now wait a I minute. really— t- <laughs> what is that,
0: Not only what does it taste like, what does it feel like to chew an eyeball of a lamb?
3: <laughs> it's kind of like eating silly putty, I guess. <laughs> Did it pop in your mouth? No, I pre- yes, no, I made sure it didn't it? pop in my mouth <laughs> actually. You do just you slice No, it's the like apples? eating a grape. It's kind of like eating a grape and not and not biting down on it. You just okay. let it slide down. That's what I was told. And
0: they weren't just pulling a prank on you and having you eat something nobody else eats.
3: No, no, and you you wonder about that, but no. It's um, probably the delicacy. It is the delicacy. I I knew from my readings that this is the delicacy and if it gets offered to you, you're incredibly honored and there's nothing to do but swallow the eyeball. So <laughs> Swallow the eyeball. <laughs> I, I did it. And I did feel honored. I felt like I, you know, suddenly was a part of this Greek mountain village in a way I hadn't been before.
0: Now, you write about, you know, that tradition where they shatter the plates. Of course, they do that in, in tourist places, you know, in, in the Plaka in Athens. But have you been in, in a small town in Greece where they're actually shattering plates not for tourists?
3: Yes, I've been in the middle of nowhere in Greece where people ended up doing what you think is the most touristing thing ever linking arms and in a circle and dancing drunkenly you know, around a, a restaurant and at the end of that flailing the, the plates into the fireplace. Everybody was doing it and I was the only tourist there so I'm ah. pretty sure that this was a, a genuine plate-throwing festival, it was great.
0: I love that when you, you've got something that in your mind is just a crass touristic cliché and then you find yourself in some, you know, godforsaken corner that's never seen a tourist, and you realize, hey, locals are doing this cliche for themselves, <laughs> not for the tourists.
3: Right. I guess this is why it became a cliche because they really do they do it out They really here. do
0: break the place. Too. Don George is our guest at the table right now on Travel with Rick Steves as we explore memorable food-related moments in our travels. Don's the editor of a collection of travel essays for Lonely Planet called A Moveable Feast. Contributors include Anthony Bourdain, Jan Morris, Pico Iyer, and Andrew McCarthy. By the way, you can send us a paragraph about the surprises that appeared on your plate overseas. There's a link for your comments in the radio section of ricksteves.com. How do you, when you're traveling, look for uh, a restaurant that will be a a good value and a good experience?
3: One of the things I have found most successful is asking locals, especially going just into a shop where, you know, a normal shopkeeper who probably doesn't make a whole lot of money and say to them, if you wanted to go out and have a, a special meal, not spending a lot of money, but have really good food in this neighborhood, where do you go? They're going to tell you, and and since they're local, they live there. They've had a lot of years of experience to filter out the good from the bad. I've never gotten a bad steer from doing that, and I always end up having a really good experience. And once in a while, the person will engage in conversation, and they'll actually say, you know what, I get off work at 6 o'clock, you know, why don't you meet me here and we'll go out together? So suddenly you've got a local guide who you've befriended, and the whole evening can turn really magical after that. So that, that's my tip. I just
0: did that in Verona in Italy. I was, when I'm updating my guidebooks, I spend a lot of time sitting there at the desk talking to the, the tourist information person, and I really enjoyed this one guy. And I, had, you know, he was very helpful, and I thought, he's cool, I, I wish he was my friend. And then I got about a block away, and I, I literally stopped, I turned around, I went back, and I said, would you like to go to dinner with me tonight? He jumped <laughs> at the opportunity, And we had a marvelous evening. And uh, what I learned was these Italians are just really poetic and romantic about their food. And I was just (laughs) scribbling notes on all the paper uh, tablecloths all around, and it actually became an article that I was able to write because I had befriended a local.
3: That's really great.
0: Another trick when when you're traveling, I think, is to remember that Don said, you know, make friends and invite him out. Another thing would be to go to the markets and I find around the produce markets you've got all sorts of little eateries that are Mm. patronized by the local shoppers and the people who work in the market and invariably they're great values.
3: One of the most famous markets is the fish market in Tokyo, Tsukiji. If you get there early in the morning to watch the fish auction, which is really fabulous and interesting be sure to eat at one of the local sit-down places because they have the best fish there. They have unbelievably great fish there at the Tsukiji fish market. So I I agree totally. The other thing I love to do is just go to a local market and and see what's in season, what's fresh. And you can get the cheapest feast almost anywhere in the world is some local cheese, some local bread and some local fruit. Mm. And you take that to a little park and you're in heaven
0: when you're trying to get a good value. Um, in India, I find that I become uh, a temporary vegetarian. It just seems like I'm I'm going with the flow, and these vegetarian tallies are just a, a delight.
3: Yes, yes, and I agree, and I think there are so many places where what's sold at the roadside food stands, like Singapore, for example, has an incredible wonderland of great food stands, and you're not eating off of fancy China with, with silver cutlery. You're eating off of plastic and paper. And it's delicious. It's a feast. It's really fresh ingredients and beautifully prepared. Um, and, you know, America has the equivalent of that now with the with the taco truck scene or the, the, the movable feasts that go around. Um, Portland has a lot of these.
0: You live in the Bay Area. And uh, I remember driving up, what is it, International Boulevard in Oakland?
3: Yes, exactly. Oh, it's right. incredible.
0: I wish I had a bigger yeah. stomach, you know. You could stop at each one of those <laughs> taco trucks And uh, I don't know what the trick is, but they are very good. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Don George, who has edited together a collection of 38 essays by great travelers, famous and not so famous, all coming together for just like a 38-course meal around the world. The book's called A Movable Feast, life-changing food adventures from all over the world. Our phone number is 877-333-7425. You can email us at radio at ricksteves.com. Monica's on the phone in Issaquah, Washington. Monica, thanks for your call.
4: Hi, Rick. Well, I think it's so interesting because I used to live in Japan, too. Um, I think, as Don said, it's exactly the heart of the culture. And I think also that Japan is, or especially like Tokyo, it's like the Paris of, of Asia because there's so many wonderful cuisines and it's so beautiful. And, you know, if you're willing and open you can make a lot of of friends because, you know, food is what Japanese talk about. It's like you say, hello, how's the weather? We say, they're like, oh, look at this dish. Where did it come from? And there's so many different kinds of regional dishes, even like what they call ekiben, which is every time you go to a station, they have Hmm. a different kind of bento box that that you can enjoy that particular area's cuisine. So these are little
0: balsa wood boxes that you get a, to go lunch for the train ride is that the idea with delicacies in the little compartments
4: yeah and sometimes they can even be a pot uh, I love that kind of that was and, one of yeah. my favorite
0: things about riding the trains yeah, mm. yeah. Don you married a Japanese woman did you just marry her for the food
3: <laughs> <laughs> no, <laughs> there were so many reasons that I married her, but certainly the food was among them. <laughs> it, was, it was a plus. It was a plus. It was definitely a plus. Well, I married a
4: Japanese <laughs> person too, and I think I kind of—I think he lured me by taking me to these restaurants with just this wonderful food. And here we are, 25 years later, and we're making lefse here at home today. You're making lefse. Lefse, oh, nice. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, now there's that interesting
0: juxtaposition, Norwegian food and Japanese food. I almost married a Japanese woman, and some of my favorite memories in, in Japan were going to these outdoor sake stands in the winter mm. with tarp around them to keep people warm with those uh, lanterns. Have either of you had that experience? Oh, yes. The, the sake, definitely. and you don't know how many glasses you've drunk because they keep filling it up.
3: Right, yeah. and they're so small that you just down them immediately. Yeah, you just think, oh, this is, this is harmless. Right, right, exactly. It's yes. I love those outdoor stands, and they have things bubbling in pots that they will you know, spoon out for you, and you eat them, and they're all delicious, and you don't know what you're eating, and you're drinking and talking. and Yeah, that's a very quintessential memory of Japan for me.
0: Monica, thanks for your call.
5: Thank you.
0: And Jacqueline's on the line in Petaluma, California. Jacqueline, thanks for your call.
5: Oh, hi. How are you doing?
0: Doing well. Do you have a thought about food around the world?
5: Yeah, um, I was in Portugal a couple of years ago for the Feast of St. Anthony, and I'll tell you, sardines were in season. And I had the best dinner I ever had in my life, I swear to you, in a weird little garden behind a funny little bar, eating on a plastic table out of a paper plate with a plastic fork and a plastic glass. They were grilling fresh sardines on a funky old barbecue. And I'll tell you, those sardines were the best thing I ever ate.
0: Now, this was in Lisbon? Yeah. In the Feast of St. Anthony. Was it in the Alfama? Yes. I love the Alfama and the Feast of St. Anthony. That is just a carnival of sensory delights, eating, music, people, lights, color.
5: It was beautiful. And they sponsor a bunch of brides and grooms who have no money. The city sponsors them, and so there was a parade of brides going through the city during the day in old-fashioned convertible cars. It was adorable.
0: Now, that's a good example, I think, right there, Jacqueline. We're talking about how mundane, simple food can take on a magical kind of experience in the big context. You've got a festival going on in the most colorful corner of a very colorful city, Lisbon. And it's the whole context, I think, that made those sardines a little better than they probably really were.
5: Oh, yeah. It was perfect.
0: <laughs> Don, do you know what I mean? <laughs> I
3: love it. I mean, yes, if absolutely. I if I got those
0: a uh, plate of sardines like that, they could be the best sardines around, but, you know, at a strip mall in Seattle, yeah, they could be quite the same.
3: You're not going to no, call up a radio
5: show to here say Oh, we were, you know, yeah. out in the middle of nowhere in the middle of the night, midnight snack of these gorgeous little sardines, and we ate them like corn on the cob. <laughs> Mm. Made a pile of bones in the middle of the table. Oh, my God, it was fun.
0: Mm. I remember (laughs) being in a fado club in the Alfama, eating sardines, and that Ah. was great because there you have all that fado, that, that musical kind of energy. I remember it was a steamy restaurant packed out, well-worn old photo singer there on a stool and the kitchen staff was all gathered around the tiny little window between the restaurant and the kitchen and it was like four heads crammed into this little hole backlit with all the cooking going on and the steamy room and fisherwomen carrying rustic plates of sardines to all the people enjoying the music and it was a four dollar dinner and it was one of the most magical travel experiences that'll stick with me for the rest of my life amazing Jacqueline thanks for your call and uh, happy eating (laughs) I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We've been talking with Don George, who's edited a new book called A Movable Feast, Life-Changing Food Adventures from Around the World. Don, you wrote that assembling this collection of food stories from all these different writers was actually a transformative experience. It made you look at things differently.
3: Well, the moment I realized that was when I caught myself singing in the kitchen as I was chopping up some carrots and... You know, just preparing a meal one night. And I thought, wow, I've really learned to appreciate food. It's just kind of gotten inside me. And now I find when I go to a restaurant, I chew more thoughtfully and more carefully. And I really taste the different flavors. And And it's just made me realize more than ever that that food is a communion of things. It's it's what you're eating, but it's also the love and care that went into the preparation and went into the serving. And it's the camaraderie of of sharing a meal with people you love. And Put all of that together and you have the unbelievable feast that is every meal, really, that we make and serve and consume together. And and that's really what the book celebrates, is that communion of of love and and nourishment that brings us together. Wow. Don
0: George, a movable feast. Happy travels.
3: Thank you, Rick. Bon appétit. Bon appétit. Travel with Rick
0: Steves is produced at Europe Through the Back Door in Edmonds, Washington by Tim Tatton with Sarah McCormick Keith Stickelmeyer read today's Travel Haiku and our theme music is by Jerry Frank Special thanks to our colleagues at the UC Berkeley Graduate School of Journalism for their help this week You'll find many of the interviews from past editions of the show arranged by the countries we discuss They're available as podcasts and as apps that you can download to your portable player or smartphone Look for the Rick Steves Audio Europe link on the front page of our website at ricksteves.com And join us again next week for more Travel with Rick Steves.
1: Rick Steves teaches smart European travel. At ricksteves.com, you'll find an archive of interviews from his radio show,
0: free audio tours of Europe's top sites, a monthly travel newsletter, and a world of information to help you turn your European travel dreams into smooth and affordable reality. To gear up for your next European adventure, begin your trip at ricksteves.com.